Let us read together from Exodus, the 14th chapter, beginning in verse 21. Exodus 14, 21. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the Lord caused the sea to go back by a strong east wind all that night and made the sea into dry land. And the waters were divided. So the children of Israel went into the midst of the sea on the dry ground. And the waters were a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. And the Egyptians pursued and went after them in the midst of the sea. All Pharaoh's horses, his chariots, and his horsemen Now it came to pass in the morning watch that the Lord looked down upon the army of the Egyptians through the pillar of fire and cloud, and he troubled the army of the Egyptians. He took off their chariot wheels so that they drove them with difficulty, and the Egyptians said, Let us flee from the face of Israel, for the Lord fights for them against the Egyptians. Just a couple of quick reminders. There are some questionnaires in the foyer. If you wouldn't mind, just take a few moments and fill out the questionnaire. It's just asking some of your thoughts on what books you'd like to know more about, maybe in the coming year or two, and what topics or themes that you uh, that you'd like to know more about from the Bible. And so that's going to help us in sermon planning and Bible class planning. Please take advantage of the opportunity to do that. It's also in the bulletin in the section that's entitled From John's Desk, those four questions. And so if you'd prefer, just send me an email. Several have done that this week. I appreciate that. I'm compiling a list and we'll prayerfully look at that as, uh, as time goes on. But thank you so much for those who've already helped in that way. And if you haven't, go ahead and take advantage of that if you don't mind. Um, Reading in Sync, that's a program that we've begun in the last few weeks. And what we're doing is, as a congregation, we're reading one chapter a day, five days a week. There are some new new forms out in the foyer, and it's on the website, uh, what we're going to be reading this week. This week, we're going to be talking about When I Survey the Wondrous Cross. We're going to be reading the four accounts of the crucifixion of Jesus in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Let me challenge you. I just wanted to say this. Let me challenge you to notice and maybe even make a note of what's unique about each one of those four accounts. Because it's like four people standing on four different corners watching an accident happen in an intersection. And if the police went back to each one of those four individuals and asked, what did you see? You're going to get a little bit different perspective. They all saw the same event, but from a different perspective and different details come out. And so as you read those four accounts this week, think about, think about the perspective that's being presented and what it says about the greatness of what Jesus has done for us when I survey the wondrous cross. This past week we read about the Red Sea crossing. Brother Randy just read a few moments ago in Exodus chapter 14 where God made sure that the Israelites could escape and their enemies could be defeated in the Red Sea. In 49 BC, Julius Caesar took his army across a river in, in Italy that was entitled, that's called the Rubicon River. 
And when Julius Caesar brought his army across that river, what he was doing was starting a civil war in Italy, in Rome. And we have a phrase in English. We say, we've crossed the Rubicon. And what that phrase means is that once this river's been crossed, once this line's been crossed, there's no going back. Something has been decided. Something has been, has been done. And the line has been crossed and there's no going back. I want you to think about the fact that the Red Sea crossing in Exodus chapter 14 was Israel's Rubicon, if you will. As a matter of fact, when you read that passage, that account in Exodus 14, God by his power delivered slaves from their slavery. And it wasn't as if the Israelites could look back on what had happened at the Red Sea and say, look at us, we were great, we escaped, we managed to get out from under the thumb of Pharaoh and his cohorts. All they could do was to give glory to God because the battle belongs to the Lord when it comes to salvation. They had not earned their deliverance. They just followed God's will. And they walked through the Red Sea on dry land and they turned around and they saw their enemies destroyed behind them. And that Red Sea crossing was, as I've said, Israel's Rubicon. And as you read through the rest of the Old Testament, whenever Israel talked about God's salvation and God's deliverance, that's the event that they always looked back to. It's the Red Sea crossing that they always brought up. God delivered us from slavery. He brought us through the sea. And then we became his people. As a matter of fact, even in the New Testament, Paul, a Jew himself, wrote to Christians by inspiration. Here's what he says. I don't want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. He's talking to Christians and he's drawing a parallel. He's saying the Israelites, they found their deliverance, they found their salvation, They found their freedom when they crossed through the Red Sea. They were baptized into Moses. And what he wants the Christians that he's writing to to understand is, even though they did that, even though they found their freedom, God was displeased with many of them because of the way that they lived their lives. And many of them perished in the wilderness. He goes on to say that in 1 Corinthians 10 verse 5. And he's warning Christians. He's saying, even though you have been baptized into Christ and you found your freedom, be careful that you don't turn away and make your hearts hardened as the Israelites did, many of them, in the wilderness. That's Paul's point. But for our purposes this morning, I want us to think about how we're saved, and when we're saved. How we're saved and when we're saved. How are we saved? We're saved by the grace of God, by what Jesus has done for us at the cross. We're saved by the blood of Jesus. We sing, what can wash away my sin? And the answer, nothing but the blood of Jesus can do that. The blood of Jesus takes away sin. But when does the blood of Jesus take away our sin? Think about the Red Sea crossing and what happened. The Israelites found themselves in slavery, in hopelessness, in fear, poverty. The Israelites had nothing to commend themselves. But when they crossed through the Red Sea on dry land, they found themselves delivered to freedom, to a sense of hope, to assurance and to the blessings of God. God's provision followed them, Paul goes on to say in 1 Corinthians 10, verses 3 through 5. God blessed them constantly. They drank from the rock. 
They ate manna in the wilderness. They crossed the Rubicon when they went through the Red Sea. And what Paul is saying to Christians is that also is what happens to us when we're baptized. We are saved by the grace of God. The battle belongs to the Lord. We do not earn anything. At the same time, it's important for us in our minds and our hearts to understand that baptism is for a Christian the time, the point at which we're delivered from sin. It's the point at which we're delivered from slavery. It's the point at which we're delivered from fear and spiritual poverty to be blessed by God, to have a relationship with him. And what I'd like for us to do with our study this morning is this. I just want us to look at six passages together that demonstrate this truth. New Testament baptism is the point at which someone who is outside of Christ comes into a relationship with him. If you've got your Bible, you might open to these passages with me this morning, but open, if you would, first of all, to Romans chapter 6, verses 3 through 6. And I want you to understand in the first place, just as those Israelites left slavery and found freedom in the Red Sea crossing, baptism stands between one who is lost, a sinner, outside of Christ, and getting into Christ. And that's not my idea, my thought. It's exactly what the Bible teaches. In Romans chapter 6, verses 3 and 4, the Apostle Paul writes to Christians, people who had already become Christians, and he's reminding them of when they crossed over, when they became Christians. And here's what he says. Do you not know that so many of us as were baptized into Christ were baptized into his death? Therefore, we are buried with him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. What's he saying? The point at which we became Christians, the point at which we died with Christ, were buried with Christ, and now are raised with Christ, that all happened in one event in space and time. It happened at the point of our baptism. When we went down into the water, we were buried with Christ. When we came up out of the water, we were raised with Christ to walk in newness of life. Therefore, baptism stands between one who is lost and getting into Christ, according to this passage. You know, some people say about baptism that it's merely a symbol. It's merely symbolic. It's an outward sign of an inward grace. And what they mean by that is that we're saved, we become Christians, and then later on maybe the church will have a baptism Sunday. And everybody who's already been saved, in these people's thinking, everybody who's already been saved will all be baptized as a symbol, an outward expression of what's already happened in their lives. I'd like to submit to you this morning that that does not reconcile with what's being taught in Romans 6, verses 3 and 4. Why not? Because look at the sequence. You have people that are saying, and I believe they're sincere, but I believe they're wrong in what they're they're teaching people. They're saying that people can hear the gospel and have faith in Jesus Christ and then be saved on the basis of that faith. That is to say, they're walking in newness of life. They've risen spiritually from the dead. And then at some point later on, we're going to bury them. That doesn't make sense in light of what Paul writes in Romans 6 verse 3. We bury somebody who is dead. 
we bury somebody who is at the end. And then we raise that person by God's power to walk in newness of life. Walking in newness of life happens after baptism, not before. Think about the illustration. You've seen this graphic before if you've listened to sermons and classes on baptism. The death of Christ, he died on a cross. The burial of Christ, he was buried in a tomb. And the resurrection of Christ, he was raised from the dead. We reenact that with Christ at the point of our baptism. We die to sin. I'm not going to live that lifestyle anymore. We are buried in the waters of baptism, Romans 6, verse 4, and we are raised to walk in newness of life. We participate in the resurrection of Jesus Christ in baptism. And just as Israel crossed through the Red Sea and their enemies were destroyed behind them and the seas closed over the the place where they had walked through on the dry land, there was no going back. Baptism is the point at which we cross over into a relationship with God We are in Christ, according to Romans 6, verse 3. That is a principle that is not being taught by the majority of the religious world. And yet it's there in black and white, in your Bible and in mine. We need to respect the words of Scripture. A second passage. Baptism stands between one who is lost and salvation. A sinner in salvation. Look at Mark 16, verses 15 and 16. In Mark chapter 16 and verse 15, Jesus says, this is called the Great Commission, go, disciples, into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. Everybody needs to hear the gospel. Everybody needs to hear that Jesus died for us, was buried in that tomb, and rose from the dead. And then Jesus puts a condition on salvation. Watch what he says. He who believes and is baptized will be saved. He who does not believe will be condemned. What's required? If I'm asking Jesus Christ, what's required for salvation? Jesus would say, you must hear the gospel. You must understand that I've died for you. The battle belongs to the Lord. Only God can save us from our sin. We can't save ourselves. How do I respond, Jesus? What should I do? And just as God opened the waters for the Israelites and they could walk through on dry land, they needed to accept the offer of salvation that was being made. So it is with a Christian, a a lost person. If I want to find salvation, I believe in Jesus Christ and I'm baptized. That's how someone becomes saved, according to Romans 16, excuse me, Mark 16, verse 16. Sometimes people will look at that passage and they'll say, well, but Jesus didn't mention baptism twice. He only mentioned belief twice. Therefore, belief must be the only thing that's important. And the analogy that's often been given is this. He who buys a ticket and gets on the bus will make it to San Antonio. But he who does not buy a ticket will not go to San Antonio. Why not? You you didn't say that getting on the bus was important, but it's important in both cases. But if you don't buy a ticket... Getting on the bus is not even part of the question. If you don't believe, baptism is not going to be something you'd ever submit to in the first place. All Jesus is doing is very plainly saying, baptism stands between one who is lost and salvation. What saves you? The blood of Jesus. When does the blood of Jesus save us? At the point of our baptism. 
A third passage, baptism stands between a sinner and the remission of sins. Look at Acts chapter 2 and verse 38. Acts 2 is a very important passage because Acts 2 is the first time in all of world history when the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus were preached to people with their implications for people's lives. People had been going around for 40 days and saying, Jesus has risen, Jesus has risen, and Jesus had returned from the dead, and he had shown himself to a number of individuals. But the implications of all that, those are not preached until Acts chapter 2. And when people heard Peter's sermon in Acts 2, and they heard about how they had been guilty of murdering the Son of God, they cried out in Acts 2.37, Men and brethren, what must we do? How can we make this up? How can we find reconciliation? How can we be forgiven of murdering the Son of God? And I'd submit to you, if ever there was a time in the Bible when the plan of salvation ought to be talked about, it's right here in this particular verse. Now listen to what Peter says in response. And he's under the influence of the Holy Spirit when he says this, so it's not something he made up. This comes from God himself. Listen. Repent. And let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. What Peter is telling his audience, he uses second person plural. He says, repent, y'all repent. And then he uses third person singular. Let every single one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ, for the remission of sin. We need to help people understand. Baptism stands between a sinner and getting into Christ, Romans 6, 3 and 4. Baptism stands between a sinner and salvation, Mark 16, verses 15 and 16. Baptism stands between a sinner and remission of sins. Our sins are remitted at the point at which we're baptized. What washes away my sin? The blood of Jesus. When does that happen? Peter connects it with baptism. And he does so by inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Notice this next. As you think about crossing the Rubicon, you know those Israelites, the Red Sea opened up, and they had a choice. They didn't have to walk through the Red Sea. They didn't have to cross over on dry land. But they accepted God's offer. They accepted God's grace. How do we do that? Think about baptism. It stands between a sinner and the saving work of God. Here's a passage we don't tend to talk about as frequently, maybe, as we think about baptism and its meaning. In Colossians chapter 2, verses 11 through 14, again, so many of these New Testament passages we're looking at are reasoning with people who are already Christians, and it's looking back to a past event in their lives. Think about what happened when you were baptized. Think about what that meant. Think about what was going on. Think about the faith that was involved in doing that. Here's what Paul writes in Colossians 2 verse 12. Talking to Christians, he said, in the past, you were buried with Christ in baptism, in which, talking about baptism, you were raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. Now consider what's being said in this passage. God's powerful work raised Jesus from the grave. 
They killed Jesus, they put him in the tomb, and God's powerful work is what raised him from the dead. That's Paul's argument there at the end of the verse. And what he's saying to you is, spiritually, you're lost. You're without hope before you become a Christian. Spiritually, you are dead in your sins and trespasses, Ephesians 2, verses 1 and 2. And it is through faith and the powerful working of God at the point of your baptism that you are raised from the dead, raised with him to walk in newness of life. What this passage tells us, brothers and sisters and friends, is it matters what I believe when I'm being baptized. It matters what I understand is happening. Is God raising me from the dead at this point? Is that where my faith is? Or is this just some outward symbolic action and I believe I've already been saved? I believe it happened at some other point. It matters what we think and what we believe because baptism is a recognition that I'm putting my faith in the powerful working of God. I'm being buried with Him. I'm being raised with Him by God's power, not my own. Baptism stands between a sinner and the saving work of God. What else do we learn about baptism in the New Testament? Baptism stands between a sinner and becoming a son of God. Becoming a son of God. I want to be a child of God, don't you? Galatians chapter 3, verses 26 and 27. In a book that deals with the gospel and its simplicity and how we should not under any circumstances add anything to the gospel or take anything away from the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let God's message be God's message and don't tamper with it. Don't add to it. Don't take away from it. Here is what this book teaches about salvation. Listen. You are all, talking to Christians again, sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. Now, if he stopped right there, faith is all you need. But he doesn't stop right there. There's a word in verse 27, for, F-O-R. That's a conjunction, if you go back to your seventh grade English class. And it's a conjunction that notes purpose or reason. So what Paul is doing is he's saying, you're all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. Here's why you're sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For, noting reason, as many of you as were baptized into Jesus Christ, were baptized into his death, have put on Christ. What Paul is saying is, when I was baptized... That's the point in time. That's the, that's the crossing the Rubicon when I put on Christ. Not before, not after. As many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. These things are not being spoken about in the world around us and sadly sometimes even in the Lord's church as frequently and as clearly as they need to be. And we start talking about when somebody's saved and what it means to come to Christ and what it means to become a disciple. And there's a lot involved in repentance and discipleship and following Jesus. But this needs to be emphasized because the Bible does in so many places. If I have not been baptized, I'm not a son of God. If, I'm not, if I've not been baptized, I've not put on Christ. And there's no other way to read the passage. Number six. 
Baptism stands between a sinner and entering the kingdom of God. One who is lost and outside of Christ is not a part of the kingdom that Jesus died to build, to establish. And Jesus, when Nicodemus came to him and talked to him about eternal life, we know that you're a teacher come from God. I want to talk to you about what it means when the kingdom of God comes. Here's what Jesus says in John chapter 3 and verse 5. Truly, truly, I say to you. You know, when Jesus just says something, we ought to pay attention. When he says, truly, truly, we really need to pay attention. Tune in. I'm telling you the truth, Nicodemus. Unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. What's that a reference to? He's referring to the action of baptism that would come about after he died and was raised from the dead. Unless someone is born of water and the Spirit, when does that happen? It happens at the same moment. We've looked at other passages. It's when we get into Christ. It's when we put on Christ. It's when we're buried with Christ and raised with Christ. It's the point at which the power of God works in our lives. Unless that happens, we're born of water and the Spirit, we cannot enter the kingdom of God. Baptism stands between one who is lost and entering the kingdom. Just as Israel crossed through the Red Sea and they went from slavery to deliverance, they went from captivity to freedom, so it is with baptism. It's not a work that we do that we're somehow earning or meriting our salvation. Rather, it is the point at which we humbly accept what God offers to us. God says, I want to forgive you. I want to save you from your sin. I want you to be cleansed by what my son Jesus did for you. I want you to know me. What's the point at which I become a Christian? What's the point at which I find salvation? It's the point of my baptism. And the Bible is emphatic about these things. It's not just one passage hidden somewhere in the scriptures. The New Testament is replete. Baptism is the point at which we become New Testament Christians. The battle is God's, but you can accept the victory that he's already won at the infinite cost of the son that he sent to this world to die for you. Maybe you need to respond to heaven's invitation this morning and put on Christ in baptism. Maybe you need to respond and ask for prayers. If you have a need... Heaven's invitation is yours while together we stand and while we sing.